BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. Hello and welcome to Too Many Lawyers, the show that gives you cutting legal insight and also ordinarily lets you vicariously shout at a family member, which, you know, maybe some of you need to do. Uh, But not this week, because this week, Royal is out. So it's just me, uh, your one many lawyer, Connor Oaks. uh, And with Royal out this week, I'm going to take the opportunity to uh, touch on uh, a few uh, topics that that interest me in particular. One, we're going to start off with a a lighter take, uh, an opportunity to talk about everyone's favorite uh, Scrooge McDuck, but dumb uh, Elon Musk. And uh, after that, we will dive into California's upcoming tobacco ban that is drawing a lot of controversy as it will eventually, uh, as it stands, become an uh, a complete uh, ban, a new prohibition, as uh, detractors warn. Uh, and we will uh, look around uh, from the leftist perspective uh, that that I tend to bring to this show um, in order to say, well, what is the leftist probably perspective probably think about such a prohibition? Aren't lefties supposed to be into drugs? Uh, and then finally, um, with Royal out of the picture temporarily. I am going to take the gloves off a bit about police abolition, defunding, and disarming. Um, uh, You all thought I was off the rails when Royal was in charge, but uh, uh, this time uh, you'll see uh, the darker side. No, we're going to be reasonable, but uh, it might get heated. So uh, stick with us through uh, the show, and uh, I promise you'll enjoy it. So first off, Elon Still the world's richest moron. Well, what has he gotten himself into these days? First off, he was on a a, a Tesla uh, shareholder meeting presentation, and the man just looked run ragged. He was, I mean, all the clips were circulating everywhere uh, on, you guessed it, Twitter, of how he is just um, uh, low energy jabbing it up. I mean, everybody is uh, is kind of shocked at how much this whole Twitter fiasco seems to be taken out of the guy. I mean, he's really letting it affect his other companies. And again, the specter of a possible uh, shareholder suit from Tesla shareholders uh, 
Mitt, which is you know, a publicly traded company, has shares, um, and thus shareholders can say, look, buddy, uh, you're not exactly giving us your all. You're not exactly putting everything you've got into this publicly traded company, which you should be doing. Uh, and they could theoretically uh, sue him for how badly he's getting distracted by his Twitter uh, fiasco. So uh, the the news of the week, uh, the the everybody point and laugh at, at Elon uh, this week uh, is that Elon is desperate desperate to win the approval of the masses right, on Twitter to get more likes and impressions. Right. He's he's explicitly telling his engineers uh, to get him more impressions and push his tweets out to more users. Just so sad, frankly, that he's got to. But the the uh, the problem he ran into uh, about 12 hours ago, if the listeners are hearing this, um, uh, well, now it would be about 36 hours ago if the listeners are hearing it. Pretty hot off the presses here at Too Many Lawyers, or One Many Lawyers, as we say. We're, we're, we're test driving that. We'll see how, see how that goes. Um, is that Elon fired a guy without even, you know, the, the courtesy of an email saying, hey, buddy, you're gone, right? Um, he fired him just by locking him out of the system. And the guy that he fired uh, had owned a company that Twitter had bought. And as part of that uh, agreement that Twitter buy his company, he became an employee of the company, of Twitter. And he's worked there for a couple of years uh, during the sort of Twitter 1.0 phase. Um, this guy tweeted out uh, to Elon Musk, at Elon Musk, hey, uh, nine days ago, my access to my work computer was cut along with 200 other Twitter employees. However, HR is not able to confirm if I'm an employee or not, and no one will answer my emails. Elon personally responds. He decides, I'm going to go down into the mud and wrestle with this pig. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, invite another uh, public you know, fiasco uh, of employee uh, relations on this because he is so desperate to prove that he is you know, trimming the fat off of Twitter and that all his fires were good fires. He, he can't possibly entertain the fact that maybe one of them uh, might be bad. Someone might see that tweet, scroll and move on and think, oh, maybe Twitter uh, fired too many people or the wrong people. No, no, he's got to go in and fix this situation. So Elon responds, what work have you been doing? The guy responds, I would need to break confidentiality to answer this question here. Elon responds, it's approved. Go ahead. The guy responds with his middle management style description of what he does. Elon responds with a bunch of nonsense, uh, saying things like, uh, how did you level up design the way you claim uh, picks or it didn't happen? You know, like a child. Uh, what changes did you make to help with what you're describing? And then he links a, a link to the YouTube uh, clip for, from the famous uh, office space scene where the uh, the consultants are coming in and saying, would you say that you're a people person, right? So this guy, uh, he follows this up. Uh, Elon follows this up with the tweet that is the real kicker, the one that is really going to get him in trouble. He says, quote, the reality is that this guy who is independently wealthy did no actual work, claimed as his excuse he had a disability that prevented him from typing, yet was simultaneously tweeting up a storm. Okay. All right. So now we're really, really getting into it. And as uh, Twitter user and journalist Stephen Monicelli uh, tweeted, hey, fellas, 
linking to Elon's tweet. Have you ever accidentally disclosed that you factored an employee's muscular dystrophy disability into your decision to fire them? Because, oops, this guy who was allegedly uh, uh, fired by uh, Musk and who uh, you know, Musk uh, alleges was not doing enough work or did no work, um, he's Musk is admitting in public that he took this guy's disability or alleged disability into account. Well, guess what? It's not really very hard to prove whether or not you have muscular dystrophy. That's pretty straightforward. That's an easy one. He can get any doctor in the world to examine the guy and be like, oh, yeah, he does have MS or MD. And that's going to be a serious problem for Musk because muscular dystrophy does impact your ability to do things like typing. The guy, uh, the fired employee responds uh, and gives a bunch of detail about the progress of his muscular dystrophy disease and the work that he did despite all that. Elon hasn't responded since then. This is uh, about to go, by the way, from bad to worse. Can you can you think, OK, how how could this possibly get worse here? Uh, Musk has has disclosed without the guy's permission. He, he waived Twitter's confidentiality right as to what this guy was saying he was doing at work. He did not in any uh, sense have permission from this guy to describe his medical condition to the public. OK, so that's great. But how could it possibly get worse? Well, the uh, the man's name is Heralder, Mr. Heralder. He sold his company to Twitter in early 2021 and became an employee of Twitter. The publicly available information shows that the agreement between Heralder and Twitter mo uh, says that most of the purchase price of Heralder's company that Twitter bought was to be paid as salary to Heralder, very unusual, for the intention of maximizing the taxes that Heralder would pay for the sale in Iceland because Heralder chose to pay tax on all of his profits instead of shielded from taxes out of respect to Iceland for the disability benefits he had received over his career. Per the agreement, he paid the second highest tax of any individual in Iceland in 2021. This is, as Monicelli put it, Elon Musk just publicly you know, pissed off the most beloved person in the only country that put bankers in jail after the 0809 financial crisis. And as another Twitter user said, he basically fired disabled Icelandic Robinhood and blamed the guy's disability, at least in part, for the firing. I mean, you can't get dumber than this. I mean, it, it's not just a legal nightmare where he's going to have a lawsuit and this guy is going to get a big payout. It's also a PR nightmare, which is what Elon wanted a PR win because Elon is completely obsessed with how many likes, tweets, and responses he get gets. I mean, the guy, the guy is the worst case of Twitter brain of all time. Like, I, I, it, it boggles, it boggles the mind that somebody could have that much money uh, and be that dumb. Because in our capitalist system, we equate uh, money and success with intelligence, and we say it's all merit based. But I guess when your family gives you uh, the profits from your uh, apartheid emerald mine, and you turn it into not nearly as much money as you probably should have turned it into, get lucky, uh, sell PayPal uh, in the early 2000s, uh, and then, you know, just kind of ride that wave. Uh, you uh, Turns out maybe it's not all about merit. Turns out luck factors in this system a lot. Uh, incredible. Fantastic. So Elon brought a little levity and light into my life uh, this week, and for that, uh, I appreciate him. 
And after our first break, we will get into the second topic of our show here, and that is California's upcoming looming tobacco ban, how it works uh, and whether it will work uh, after this first break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Welcome back to Too Many Lawyers. I'm Connor Oaks, and not with me this week, again, still is Royal Oaks. Uh, but this week, all on my own, I am going to be walking you through, fo- you folks through the California tobacco ban that uh, Royal and actually touched on very briefly last week. And this, as we touched on it last week, uh, we did describe the way it works is it sets a date. It says, People who are younger than, that is, born after this date, uh, can't buy cigarettes in the state of California. Okay, well, that's a standard way to do age restrictions, right? Uh, Except that date doesn't move. But time marches on. So as the the years pass, the age of legal ability to buy tobacco products in California will get older and older and older, going from, from 18 to 19 to 20, et cetera, until eventually... Nobody but great, great gramps is going to be able to buy cigarettes uh, for anybody. And frankly, I don't know what level, what uh, what age cutoff it, it becomes. I mean, practically, it's going to disappear um, be, from the marketplace because there won't be enough customers available and able to buy this stuff. So even even when it's you know only for 70, 80 uh, year olds uh, to purchase, uh, frankly, uh, they're, they're probably going to be off the market even earlier. Not to mention the fact that a lot of tobacco users uh, will pass earlier than non-tobacco users, uh, which means that the marketplace for tobacco will be even smaller. So it's a really interesting, uh, uh, different approach um, that is is taken, uh, is being taken by California, uh, I think, with uh, addiction in mind, right? They're saying the that they have to acknowledge the reality that people who are addicts uh, to a substance that has withdrawal effects, um, and those withdrawal effects can have you know future effects or health uh, complications, that they're not interested in banning this thing outright, but they're just hoping that they can prevent future generations, future years from being affected by this substance. But you all say, rightfully, hold on, don't we know that prohibition doesn't work? Don't we know that from you know the libertarian perspective that my father Royal would be uh, espousing if he were here today, all the way to uh, the leftist perspective uh, that I, I bring in, 
they'll tell you that prohibition and criminalization especially don't work. So isn't this just going to be another failed experiment where we create the next Al Capone, but for loose cigarettes, uh, and uh, we create more over-policing, more interactions with, with law enforcement where people are being uh, fined or jailed uh, or otherwise involved in the criminal legal system uh, for something that is frankly a personal choice, right? I mean, the decision to use a drug um, is a, 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 a part of our reality, our society, um, and it's a decision that people make for themselves. Well, I think the leftist perspective has to be more nuanced than that. I think that the the uh, uh, the far right or the you know horseshoe theory call come all the way around to sometimes agreeing with us leftists uh, perspective um, that my father uh, would uh, would agree with um, gets to oversimplify and I don't mean that as a derogatory uh, uh, phrase but the 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 concept the idea is hey government butt out hey society and moral judgment butt out people should be able to make these decisions for themselves I think that is, a, is an over, oversimplification because we do need to infringe on people's uh, ability to ta take certain actions in order to make the world a freer place right you are less free uh, in, in a world uh, where you don't have to wear a seatbelt because you're dead sometimes, right? There's this notion of either positive or negative freedom, the idea that laws that restrict us might make us more free. A law against murder makes everybody out there freer because they're not being murdered, but they don't have the right to murder. So they're less free, right? No, they're, they're more free because they're not getting murdered, right? So the question is, in, in what way does, does this law affect others? Well, that's the first question, but it's not the only question, because as I said in the seatbelt example, we can murder ourselves by, you know, absent the intent requirement of murder in the, under the law, we can think of ourselves as potentially uh, causing harm to ourselves in an intentional way uh, that the state can prevent uh, for our own good, our own benefit. We can be forced to wear helmets or seatbelts. We can be forced to obey speed limits in a way that would protect ourselves. But speed limit laws are a great example because it spills over. It's almost inevitable that laws that protect ourselves often protect others around us smoking as one vec you know, vector for uh, uh for tobacco receipt and, and nicotine receipt uh, has the massive implication of secondhand smoke and people want to draw out uh, uh, analogy to alcohol uh, or other uh, illegal drugs but secondhand smoke being a major risk factor carcinogen uh, for lung cancer means that there are many Americans uh, and people around the world, uh, but we're talking specifically about Californians here, uh, who die every year of lung cancer who've never smoked a cigarette in their lives. And it's not just car exhaust, although it is that too, cars are killing us, um, but secondhand smoke is a very strong argument for a progressive tobacco ban like this one. So overall, I think the idea that we fall into the trap of, oh, prohibition doesn't work, that does so massively oversimplify the problem because prohibition does work for some things, like murder or 
not wearing your seatbelt, right? <laughs> I mean, when we think about when we say prohibition doesn't work, we're saying inevitably you will end up with a black market for something. Well, if you don't market cigarettes to children, and if you don't couch drugs like tobacco in commercially available uh friendly faced flavors and additives like menthol um, and you don't uh, soften the impact of something like chewing tobacco, which is a horrific, uh, horrifically uncomfortable delivery vehicle and smoking, which has a lot of downsides. Um, you may find uh, that you don't have the momentum created that keeps the smoking population going. You may find that prohibition does work to drop the incidence of smoking. And this is something we'll get into with harm reduction uh, in a little bit, it's sort of the, the, uh, the end note on the whole thing. But maybe our goal with prohibition can be to reduce uh, the uh, impact of a substance to only a black market presence or a gray market presence or a limited market presence uh, that is means that the product is only available in certain less harmful forms, right? In the same way that we might have gun control uh, to prevent everybody from owning bazookas, uh, maybe we prevent people from uh, buying menthol cigarettes because you can smoke more of them more comfortably and more easily and give yourself lung cancer more quickly. Uh, and there's no need for people even who are addicted uh, to have uh, or might possibly become addicted if we allow it uh, to have access to uh, these sort of the, the, the accoutrement, the stuff that comes with um, smoking. So I think the idea that just resting back on the idea, oh, prohibition doesn't work. That is a danger. That is a problem. Right. So I think we should not fall into that trap. And finally, I think the leftist perspective on a tobacco ban has got to incorporate the notion, uh, the principles of harm reduction. And harm reduction is, is a concept uh, that arises in uh, the use of illegal drugs, illicit drugs, right? Um, drug use, as harm reduction says, is a fact of life. People drink coffee and get caffeine. Uh, people smoke cigarettes. People drink alcohol. People do heroin. It's going to happen. And harm reduction says we've got to understand that this is a, as they put it, multifaceted phenomenon that that encompasses a big continuum of behavior from total abstinence to severe use, right? And that we should recognize that different drugs have different risk factors uh, that you know make our lives worse in one way or another, uh, and that those downsides kick in at different dosages, different types of using, using different, uh, uh, you know, uh, frequencies. You know, if you use a drug once and then never again, sometimes it can permanently harm you. Sometimes it, uh, those, that's not how those drugs work, right? But all these drugs are on a continuum. And the most important thing is to recognize that the humans out there, the people who are using drugs are not doing it because they're bad people uh, or even because they're flawed, but because it's a choice that they're making. It's a choice they're going to continue to make. And the, the best way forward for a society is to help them make that choice in a better 
healthier way, which in the under the principles of harm reduction often leads to things like um, safe needle exchange programs. So for people who use intravenous drugs, one of the highest risk, risk factor issues is that you can get infections like HIV or simply just an infection from a dirty needle uh, that that causes you know an abscess or something. Everything up from just you know pain, uh, discomfort, uh, or even sepsis and death up to a serious infection with a, a, a potentially incurable or very difficult to cure disease like HIV. Those are complications that stem from from uh, just using the needle as the delivery factor. And the same thing uh, is true of other drugs as well. And we should be thinking about principles of harm reduction and possibly uh, a, po a total ban on a substance can be part of a harm reduction strategy if you recognize, okay, we will have a total ban on users above this certain, uh, or rather below this certain birth date, but then we will understand, accommodate, and work with the people who continue to use the drug illicitly after that ban. That is the way that prohibition can work, right? If you think about the prohibition in the 20s, they were mostly driving, you know, uh, cars around the backwoods, breaking up whiskey stills uh, hidden uh, in the hills, uh, you know, set up by hillbillies. They weren't exactly thinking about principles of harm reduction. And so there are very good reasons why prohibition didn't work. It was motivated by uh, probably the wrong reasons, uh, economic ones largely, and its methods were archaic. So it's possible that prohibitions on drug use can go hand in hand with compassionate uh, harm reduction um, uh, systems in order to reduce the overall usage and then treat users uh, better. And you never know, not every drug is created equal. Not every drug is great, right? There are drugs out there like mushrooms and LSD that people keep using inevitably uh, and, and forever because they're so you know, attractive uh, and uh, the experience is so great for them um, and it makes their lives better. And there are drugs out there like tobacco uh, where if they weren't available at 7-Eleven and people didn't get addicted as teenagers because it looked so cool, it may well be that they would kind of fade out, right? And then maybe you have cigar smokers, you know, people who are into the taste. But does anybody really, really need a cigarette if they're not addicted to it? There are other methods of getting your, you know, your, your caffeine style uh, uh, high. So it is possible that prohibition can be part of an overall strategy like this one. So that's what I think about this tobacco ban. In short, it's complicated. And it's not necessarily true that all pro, uh, prohibitions are a bad thing because they can, if implemented a certain way uh, with certain drugs and alongside harm reduction principles, they can reduce overall incidents as long as we aren't then applying the brutal might of the carceral state to the people who violate such a ban. Although, isn't that inevitable? in our society, who knows? We'll delve into uh, what else is inevitable and the brutal might of the, of the carceral state after our second break here when I take the gloves off and talk about uh, defunding the police here. Uh, so I'll see you all after. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Welcome back, everybody. This is Connor Oaks, and you've still got too many lawyers for one many lawyers. I'm never going to get tired of the joke uh, here today as I handle this uh, podcast solo. So sad that Royals under the weather. But uh, while I'm here and unsupervised, uh, I'll be talking defund and disarm the police. Uh, But first, a reminder that if you got us on any podcast platform that you frequent, it's very easy to hit that join, like, subscribe, or whatever other button gets you this podcast pushed directly to your podcast uh, app inbox every week. And while you've probably done that, if you're listening to us, you might not have. We'd love it if you'd share it with somebody else. And we'd also love it if you would leave us a comment or a review, a star rating, whatever you like, whatever you're feeling, because we really appreciate each one. uh, And they help the metrics out and make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. Okay, so now our last final and largest topic of this solo uh, edition of Too Many Lawyers. The headline on the defund the police conversation, this is, uh, is got to be that change rarely happens from within. Defund is an acknowledgement of that. And it says, therefore, we must defund from without. Because Advocates of police control of policing have been saying for years, well, we just need more money and more oversight with less oversight from of cops, with less oversight from non-cops, less oversight from the city or the county or the state, with less oversight from any sort of, uh, you know, review and regulation, uh, internal affairs type oversight uh, that we need to be trained and allowed to do our jobs and be given the resources to do so. And that problems like police brutality will be alleviated by us having more money in our coffers to train cops to don't do police brutality. We've seen over, I'd say, the last century that that's not the case. That well-funded police departments don't have fewer instances of police brutality. We see police brutality is a constant uh, problem throughout American history. And if anything, it has only worsened. So what do you do about it? What do you do about the fact that the police are not doing what they ought to do to keep us safe and to make our societies happier and healthier? Because we truly do ask them to do that. We truly do ask cops to do an incredible amount of stuff, right? To do way more than we you know, expect uh, any other member of a governmental organization to do. They have, they wear a hundred hats and they do maybe three or four of them particularly well. And yet 65 of the nation's 300 largest cities spend 
40% plus of their general budgets on policing. Now, just threw a bunch of numbers at you, but basically, when it comes to big cities, and a lot of small cities too, because they don't have much else to spend on, but it's importantly, relevantly, big cities, because that's where people live, um, and that's where everyone thinks the crime wave epidemics are, um, they spend an enormous amount of their money on policing, which means an enormous amount of money per citizen uh, on cops. But it also just means less money for everything else. Money's fungible, right? So by defunding police, you can theoretically increase funding elsewhere. 40% of your general budget of your city on police. Well, that's that better do something, right? That better save lives, right? And yet we hear the narrative that crime waves abound, the epidemic spreads, that murders are going crazy. So what are we paying all this money for if we're not getting better quality of life? Well, first off, it's actually very debatable that life has not improved, right? It's very, very arguable. People will tell you that uh, you know murder in Chicago or New York or wherever else is worse than it has ever been. Well, in New York City in 1989, there were 2,246 murders, 2,246 in the same city in 2002, after the population grew by 4 million more people, so it's even denser. That number is down from 2,246 to 433. So why do people think there's a crime epidemic where we need to arm cops to the teeth, give them bazookas and tanks and let them uh, roam the streets with less oversight and uh, more resources? The answer is probably social media. The answer is probably local news. The answer is probably mean world syndrome being exploited for maximum profit. There's a carjacker behind every blade of grass. But there's not. We are broadly safer every day than we were the day before in this country. So why do we need to keep increasing police budgets? The answer is we don't. A great analogy, a great analogy that has been brought up by many, many intelligent uh, people, but uh, recently written about by Jason Cotty, uh, Kotke, sorry, and then tweeted previously about by Jamie Ford, and it, which is the subject of an upcoming um, uh, documentary film, um, is a fantastic example of defunding the police with fantastic outcomes. Until the 1970s, in the United States, ambulance services were generally run by local police and fire departments. There was no law requiring people who drove ambulances to have any medical training other than, you know, put a bandage on a wound. And in a lot of cases, the assignment to police officers of ambulance duty was used as a punishment. Hey, basically, go drive this hearse, pick up corpses and take them to the morgue because we're not actually doing anything in terms of emergency medical care on site at the moment of a crime or an accident or anything else. And guess how well disgruntled white police officers uh, demoted to ambulance duty in black neighborhoods treated the people that they were transporting? The answer is not well in the 60s. So black leaders in Pittsburgh created 
a uh, an organization called the Freedom House Ambulance Services, and they worked with a doctor at the University of Pittsburgh uh, who had lost his daughter tragically to an acute asthma crisis. And the leaders, uh, uh, the black leaders in Pittsburgh, worked with this doctor to say, "Let's." train emergency medical technicians, people who will know what to do in a medical crisis, and then they will go on to train more ambulance drivers and emergency medical technicians so that they'll be able to react in a crisis. And they're not just taxis, right? They're not just cops whose only training is to do with guns, largely, uh, who show up and see someone bleeding out, throw them in the back of a long uh, uh, station wagon and take them to the morgue. This was a massively incredibly successful uh, program. And the cops predictably resisted change and resisted retraining their personnel, saying, well, we're cops. We don't do that. Uh, We're not about to make our service to the public better. What we do is we carry guns around. We wield the exclusive use of force in this country uh, sanctioned by the sovereign the government. So the city reallocated funds. That means defunded the police departments in the amount required to take away their job duties to go from being cops and ambulance drivers to just cops. And that, as of the 60s and 70s when this happened, and was so successful that it was replicated all over the country, every city that you could think of, EMTs are now trained and by law have regulation about the medical training they have. And it's no longer the duty of cops to do that because that's not what we want cops to do or need cops to do. Right. And this ended up better for everyone involved, including the cops, because the cops were no longer demoted to basically hearse driving. And instead, that was handled by somebody with the expertise to actually make a difference in that area. And cops got back to doing what it is they did best. Now, don't get me started on what it is the cops do best, but at least they were out of the hearse driving game. And you had actual ambulance drivers that actually knew what they were doing, at least to a degree. So that's a fantastic analogy that puts the lie to the false dichotomy that we are all told, that we are all given. When somebody says, hey, defund the police, disarm the police, disband the police, they, the response is often, well, you're offering a choice between anarchy and fascism. And yeah, we might be kind of close to fascism, but it's still better than anarchy. That's the upshot of what people say when they say, well, you want to get rid of cops, you want to disarm cops, uh, you know, whoever you send out there without guns is just going to get murdered. Um, uh, We'll all be victims of crime because uh, you want to take away all the laws and protections that we all have. That's not true. That's not what anyone wants. What we want is to think about innovative solutions to the problems that police are currently being asked to solve and recognize who among us should really be solving those problems. Who would be better at this? Inevitably, we're going to come up with these answers just in the same way that we did coming up with the answers about ambulance drivers. So if we're not going to descend into a Mad Max style apocalypse just because we defund uh, the Los Angeles Police Department by 5%, 10%, 50%, or 100%, the question arises, well, why does an armed cop 
stop you if you have expired DMV registration tags? And why does he or she run a warrant check to decide whether to arrest you at the same time? Because then if somebody has a warrant out and that cop is at risk, uh, is now at risk of somebody who is afraid for uh, their ability to go free because they may be arrested for a warrant. If everyone knew that the person stopping you for expired DMV registration tags was not going to run a warrant check and could not arrest you, even if you did have an outstanding warrant, then that cop would not get shot by someone who's trying to get away from that warrant. And that's not to say that warrants can't be served and shouldn't be served by in the right circumstances by the right people, but you wouldn't send an ambulance driver to serve a warrant. So if you are afraid that if you defund and disarm police, then at a traffic stop, some criminal who doesn't want to get arrested is going to shoot a cop, then maybe we shouldn't be using traffic stops for speeding and busted taillights and expired DMV tags as an opportunity to run a warrant check on your ID or your license plate to determine whether the cop should detain you. Maybe that should be left to the professionals in the context and circumstances that they can control to serve a warrant. So I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a a SWAT team on call for a hostage situation. I'm saying the representatives of government power that humans regularly interact with, whatever they are called or should be called, hopefully not cops only, because we should have more names for it, in the way that they serve anything short of an arrest warrant for a violent felony, those people probably don't need to be packing heat. We once all lived in the Wild West, and it's just a guy on a horse with a star-shaped badge and a six-shooter was the best solution to all lawbreaking. But now we live in a surveillance society with 10 camera angles on every inch of public roads and every business. Why are we relying on the 17th century six-shooter technology? We don't arm meter maids. We don't have heat-seeking missiles attached to red light cameras. We don't need armed cops enforcing people who jump subway turnstiles or giving you a ticket if you if you roll through a stop sign. So defund the police, chop their jobs up into little pieces, and you might just find another solution to another major problem that I want to touch on because it's related. The job of cop attracts the wrong kind of person to do most of the jobs they currently do. And then it asks them to do a majority, not the stuff they signed up to do. Here's an analogy. The job of firefighter attracts people who want to run into burning buildings, right? The job of NFL linebacker attracts people who want to physically subdue, dominate, control the bodies of others to defend the good guy against the bad guy. That's the rules of the game. That's what the job of NFL linebacker does on the field. The job of cop is pretty much exactly that job. And this doesn't mean that NFL linebackers are bad people. It's simply a job that attracts the kind of person who is good at this, wants to be good at this, wants to feel good at being good at this, right? But then we create a police state where we give the linebackers guns and sick them on the citizenry. We teach them that all cops are the good guys and all non-cops are the sheep to be herded in whatever way is convenient for the police in order to uncover the wolves hiding among them.
And we all know police defenders who will rise in mass every time a cop kills an innocent person to say, oh, well, the Derek Chauvin's of the world is just a bad apple, right? Nobody thinks about the rest of the phrase. The phrase is bad apples spoil the bunch. They don't reinvigorate the bunch. They don't, they don't, you know, they're not overcome by the good apples who, who, who heal their badness from within the bunch. It's not going to happen. As I said at the beginning, change happens from the outside. Defunding, disarming, these are tools that we, the people, can use to control the people who are currently running amok, linebackers among our society, sicked on the citizenry. Chauvin was surrounded by a bunch of other cops who literally defended him physically from bystander intervention. They also didn't intervene themselves. This is not a failure of training that can be solved with more money. This is a failure of a system that has created a job that largely attracts the kind of people we don't want in that job and largely then asks them to do things that they're not qualified to do. And when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So defund the police, chop up their jobs into little pieces, hand those pieces to people with actual expertise, let the SWAT team do what they do, but defund and disarm the cops that are currently running roughshod over us. Well, that's my rant, everybody. That's my rant, and that's the show. That's Too Many Lawyers, solo edition. One Many Lawyers. I had to get it in one more time. I appreciate uh, if you made this long without the tempering influence of uh, Royal's uh, dulcet tones. Uh, Royal will be back next week, um, and you will hear his response, I'm sure, to the uh, uh, potentially inflammatory takes I gave. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. All right, everybody. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful, but we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.